because his fingernails were so dirty um, that they looked, uh, they looked almost black. Um, it, the coat he was wearing was so covered in kind of dirt and mud and that when Skylar patted him, dust went everywhere. Um, I, I'm, I'm talk, I, I've mentioned this fellow before. If you're, ever, if you're ever on Lovell Road and you see a, he looks about 65, he's only 50-something. If you see a, a guy out there near the Waffle House on Lovell Road, his name's Kenneth. And he's become Skylar's friend. The other day we were, we were driving and we were coming off Level Road and he was standing there with his sign. I've always wanted to carry one of those signs that says, I'll work for food, but I think people would be afraid. They'd say, that'd be too much. But we, we, came, uh, we came up and yelled at him and said, come over, eat with us if you like. We're going to Waffle House. And... Uh, I realize many of you think that there's two bad judgments in that statement. One, going to Waffle House, and <laughs> two, inviting a homeless guy to come with you. Um, so we didn't know if he'd come or not, but, we, but Zay and Skylar and I got a, got a booth, at, a very comfortable, beautiful booth at Waffle House and, and ordered our delicious gourmet meal. And in comes, well, in comes Kenneth. And, and Kenneth has been living for about 10 years on the street has some family somewhere. Uh, we've been trying to get to let him have us call his family, so just to tell him he's alive still. He says they wouldn't be interested. He has eight brothers and sisters. Skylar said, Kenneth, come sit with us. So Kenneth comes and he sits down and Skylar puts his hand on him, hugs him. And I'm thinking, what are the germs going on here? And then Skylar pushes up against him and says, how are you doing, Kenneth? And Kenneth just mumbles because nobody really ever talks to him anymore. And he's, I'm doing fine, I'm doing okay. And Skylar just kept talking to him. And then we said, well, what'd you like to eat? So the lady came and got him his meal. It's funny. Dignity has a way of sticking on a person. A couple weeks ago, David Forbes, who's a better man than any 10 people I know, um, he, he tries to get us as a church to do things that matter. I try to do things that don't matter most of my life, but, can I, but, but, but David Forbes actually tries to get us to actually do good things. And so he had my family go to CARM one night to feed, to do kind of a, to help with the cafeteria. And it was amazing. I saw my I saw my son-in-law, Noah, and one of the other family members were helping with the handicapped people. And those people, they would put up their card, and you'd, they, they were not only handicapped because they're homeless, but they were also non-typical because they couldn't move well enough to get up to get their food. And so if you're working that station, you go and you pick up their card and you go get their meal. And, and at first, the person said, listen, that, these people can be pretty demanding. But you should have seen my son-in-law. He was so kind to them that before long, he would call him sir and ma'am and yes, ma'am. What would you like, ma'am? And sir, it was amazing to see the look in the eyes of people when they're treated with dignity. What gives people dignity? Well, 
I would suggest to you that you have dignity because you're created in the image of God and because if Christ is in you and you're one of his children, you can actually be a part of eternal things. And if you can be, now, don't misunderstand. We're totally depraved. We're sinners. I, I, I get that. That doesn't contradict the fact that you have not looked upon a mere mortal in your life. And it doesn't contradict the fact that there's not a person in this room that doesn't, doesn't carry in their design the very thumbprint of God. The dignity of divinity is in every human being. Well, the passage this morning we're going to look at is found in the Sermon on the Mound, and you think, well, why, why are we talking about dignity? Well, that's the opposite of what murder would be to another person. To kill another person is to, is to destroy something that deserves sacred dignity. Well, we're going to be looking at a passage together that basically deals with anger. <laughs> you don't have to look too far to see anger in our culture. I thought about doing my sermon today with a mask on. And then about half of you would go, what's he doing, a mask? When is he supposed to wear a mask? People can't wear a mask. And the other half would go, finally, somebody's wearing a mask in this church. <laughs> I thought about how angry we all are. Somebody at Ingalls, they go in the express lane with 14 items. And I know they're 14 because I counted them six times. <laughs> Can't they see it says 12? I was on the line this week with, on hold with the IRS. There is an exciting moment. After an hour of waiting on hold, I, had to, I, I switched to my phone. And as I did, I accidentally hung it up. Oh, was I angry. <laughs> Somebody in a $70,000 car didn't evidently understand how to use their blinker. I mean, I'm thinking with a $70,000 car, you should be able to use a blinker to tell me you're turning. Do you ever get angry? There's another shooting this week. We live in a culture that's angry. You bring up any topic. You, you watch CNN, you watch Fox. It doesn't matter in one sense what you watch. They'll both be angry and everybody else is wrong. There's such contempt. And that's the world we live in. Just angry. So long ago on a hill, Jesus gave a sermon and he turned everything upside down. On that hill, he talked about a different way of seeing life. And so this morning, we're going to look at that sermon together in this section on anger. But before we talk about the Word of God, before we talk about him, let's talk to him. Let's pray together. Father, I just acknowledge to you as I stand here that I'm not qualified to teach on anger, or at least on the correct way to deal with it. You know that. For some reason, in your grace, 
You've allowed me to talk about it. So I pray my words would be used by you in some way, that they would echo into things that matter in glory. Father, you know every person here in this room. You know the people that fought on the way here. You know the couples barely hanging on. You know the kids struggling with doubt. You know the families. Well, you know it all. There's not a person in this room that's here by accident. There's not a person in this room that you don't know and call by name. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have dignity in their design because they're created in your very image, dear God. So Father, use this time to change us. For the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use this time to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them and use it to equip us all in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, amen. If you would, if you can, if you're comfortable doing so, if you'd stand, I'm gonna read with you a passage we're gonna be looking at together today. It's found in the fifth chapter of Matthew. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. And it's verses 21 through 26. It falls into, two, into three couplets. And the truth is, we're going, to, we're going to do the sermon based on those three couplets. And a matter of fact, you could easily do a sermon on each one of those sections. But it's all ultimately about kind of dealing with this, with anger. So... Let's listen to God's word together. You've heard that it's said to those of old that you shall not murder. And whoever murders is liable of judgment. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother (coughs) will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid your last penny And God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You know, when you talk about anger, it's easy to talk about anger out there. Those other people that are angry. But I find that if I'm honest... The place I need to kind of hear these words is not for other people out there, but for me in my own home. I I get angry. When I have to put things together, I get angry. I'm not good at putting things together. When I'm inconvenient, when I'm inconvenienced, I I get angry. I, I want life to go with me. If you want to know somebody well, see what makes them angry. If you pull on the thread of anger, you're going to see a line that's easy to understand and can teach you a lot about that person. Anger comes from disappointment. 
Disappointment comes from having a blocked goal. Having a blocked goal comes from a, a, having a goal, a desire, whether godly or not. That's really funny. A lot of people read these and say, yes, but I have righteous anger. I maybe once in my life had righteous anger. I don't think most of us need to worry about whether or not our anger is righteous or not. Let's just assume it's not. Because usually it reveals, if you pull on the string, it reveals a commitment to, I want life on my terms. Usually when, you, when I look at my anger and, it's, and when I'm not, it's not, it's, I'm not getting my way, you made my life inconvenient. You, you don't understand. You've made it harder for me and I clench my fist. Sometimes that fist, that fist is clenched at God. Sometimes it's at others. Sometimes at myself. There's a sense of, and that's anger. So God wants us to think about anger differently. Now, a couple of things you need to know about this passage. First of all, Seth just did a great job teaching on the fact that Jesus said that he was not coming to do away with the law, but he was a completion of the law. And then it seems like Jesus is kind of critiquing and changing the law. That's not what he's doing. Listen, look at the wording. He doesn't say, the law of Moses says this, but I say this. He says, you've heard it said by people of old. What he's criticizing is the interpretation of Moses' law, not the law itself. And that's an important thing to note. Um, and, and, and all of these, there's, in, in all of these, you're going to go down the list um, in the weeks to come. You'll see that he'll say that. He won't say, Moses' law says this, but I say this. He'll say, you have, it's been heard, or you've been told, or you've heard this. And so, be aware that Jesus is not changing Moses' law. What he's doing is he's critiquing the poor teaching of Moses' law. The second thing you ought to know, and just in general, before we look at the passage specifically, that Jesus takes this very, very personally and seriously. Now, when Jesus said, you are salt and light, that is a plural understanding. And, and if you look at the Greek, the, the grammar in the Greek, it's a, you all are salt and light. And even that, you have heard it said, that's, that's, that's to all of us. But then, you know, Jesus knows grammar pretty well, and then he shifts it to, but if you're on your way to court, you do this. Make a, you know, if, if you're at the altar. So it's not a, something, God takes this very, very personally and seriously. And so we're supposed to understand and think about this, not in terms of others, but in terms of ourselves. So, as we look at these passages together, I would just suggest to you that, um, that we are, give me just one second, um, let's look at the first two verses together, and then we're going to break them down into two, in every two verses. The first two verses, I'm going to read them again, it says this, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder but whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable for the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable for the, for, the, for the fires of hell. Now, at the end of each of these couplets, there's death. 
in this one. It says, you go to hell for calling your brother a fool. But let, let's just go back one step and say, what did the Pharisees do? What does Jesus critique of their teaching about this? Their problem is they have taught this in a way that doesn't apply to them. And I can do the same. I don't think I've murdered anybody today. Well, a good thing I've followed that commandment. Boy, it just leads to kind of a self-righteousness, doesn't it? Um, we tend to apply the word of God in ways it does not in impact us. Like, I consider fat to be 10 pounds more than whatever I weigh at the present. I consider rich because Jesus says important things about how rich people should be, should, should treat the, their neighbor, I consider rich $10,000 more than whatever I make. Why? Because I don't want it to apply to me. And so, so much so, I've had people teach this lesson saying, well, I don't say the word fool. And it's like, well, I think you're missing the point. Because what we have done, and this is incredibly important theologically, you've got to understand this, this is radical. I mean, this is absolutely upside down for theologians. What we tend to do is we focus on behavioral sin. And in this moment, Jesus ups the ante and changes it to relational sin. We have what I would call a static, and some people might call a superficial understanding of sin. And Jesus in this says, no, no, I have a dynamic relational view of sin. Well, sometimes we'll use the word hermeneutic. We'll talk about I, 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 it means how I interpret. And so we might say, well, we have a reformed hermeneutic, which means our reformed theology helps us to interpret Scripture. Well, I would suggest to you here something that is really important that you understand. Jesus is inviting you to develop a relational hermeneutic to interpret and understand Scripture, yes, through a Reformed lens, through a, a well-thought-out lens, but also through a, a relational lens, that how we relate to other people, how we relate to God, matters to Him. Our relationships matter to Him. He is a relational God with a heart for redemption. And therefore, how we relate how we engage, how we connect or don't connect means something to God. And so the first thing I would want you to notice from these two verses is this invitation to a different type of theology, a relational hermeneutic. People have been hurt by behavioral sin if I were to ask you the greatest hurts of your life, I'll guarantee you it wasn't behavioral sin. It was relational sin. It was someone betrayed you. Someone lied about you. Someone, someone harmed you. Someone abused you. Somebody treated you with disdain. That's, that's relational sin. I got to take behavioral sin seriously as well, but behavioral sin, we, we can kind of take a step back and and kind of pick, our, pick and choose our behavior so we're back in charge. So, okay, I'm not going to be... I think God's inviting us to have something very different than that. A very different way of, of engaging each other and him. I mean, after all, what, what did sin cost? I mean, the wages of sin is death. Death of what? 
the death of our relationship with God. What happened when sin entered in? The relationship with God was broken. What happened when the blood of Christ paid for the sin of this world so that the, the people that, that, that know him can have relationship with him, that they have relationship with him. It's all about relationship. And we, just like the Pharisees, want to make it just about behavior. Because if I can make it about behavior, I can win. Because I'll just define it about the behavior that doesn't affect me. Jesus wasn't going to let us get away with that. Because he wants to change our hearts. He wants to change the way we relate to each other. He wants to change the way that you relate to him. And so he blows up that simple sort of theology that lets it be about you trying harder and you, and you defining it just merely by behavior and says, I'm dealing with your heart. Wow. That changes things for me. First thing I want you to note from this text is that there's a relational view of sin Note the theological significance of a relational hermeneutic. Know the, know the amazing reality of a dynamic versus a static or superficial view of sin. Next from this first two verses, I, I want you to note the weight, the incredible weight of contempt on another person. The word that's used here, there's really two words in, in, the, in, the, in, in the Greek. One of the words is the word that we get the word moron from. The other is a word that some of you, if you have NIV, it'll leave it, it won't translate. It'll, it'll say raka. Um, in your ESV, it says fool. It means empty-headed, um, worthless. It's, it's, a, it's a term of contempt. Uh, it's a term of disgust. <sighs> Contempt. Do you know what the greatest predictor of divorce is? It's not whether or not you're an aardvark or a golden retriever or a four or a seven or an ESPN or an INTJ or whatever. The greatest predictor of divorce is how a couple deals with conflict. And the greatest struggle within that is whether or not in conflict the couple shows contempt for one another because it seems as if in a relationship that should be about love and commitment, contempt is poison and toxic. Contempt is that disgusting sort of, I guess we're going to do it your way again today. It's the roll of the eyes. It's the disgust. It's the, yeah, yeah, I guess... I guess your way is the right way after all. That's contemptuous. And, and what Jesus is saying here is he said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say, if you hold people with contempt and disgust, you're guilty of the sin of murder and deserve hell. Well, I don't hold my dog with contempt, but boy, how do you do with politicians? 
as a Christian, you have the right to disagree with anybody you want, but you do not have the luxury to treat an image bearer of God, no matter what they believe politically, you do not have the option to treat them with disdain. You don't have the option to treat them with disgust because they are they're sinners, just like you and I. They're totally depraved. But because they're an image bearer of God, because the very thumbprint of God is in their design, they deserve to be given the dignity of that. And because you don't know how they'll end up, they may end up on the side of Jesus. They may respond. Jesus may call them as his own. And if he does, he's on, they're on your side. And at that point, they, can, they deserve the... How did C.S. Lewis say, you've never met a mere mortal? There's not a person you see every day that doesn't bear the image, the shadow, the, 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 the essence in one sense of, of, of our God in him or her. We do not have the luxury as Christians. We stand for truth. We can say the truth. We can say we disagree with somebody politically. We can say they're wrong politically. We can say somebody's on the side of the wrong, the wrong side of what God would want for them. We can say that this behavior is sinful, but we are not allowed the luxury of holding others with disdain and contempt because that's considered murder. That's considered murder in Jesus' very words on that mountain that day. Holy cow. Am I in trouble? You pull in front of me in your car and I'll hold you with contempt. My goodness gracious. So God is suggesting something so radical here so personal, so revolutionary, so powerful. It's okay to disagree. You can debate. There are people that are wrong. We are all sinners. There's not a person in this room that's not totally depraved. That's true. Our culture is going crazy and is a mess. That's true. However, you know, I know there are people that have left this church over what some of us have put on our Facebooks. Because they've told me. Why are you not coming back? I just saw some of the things that people put on Facebooks. You can give your opinion. I mean, please do. I want you to give your opinion. I want to know more about what you think and feel. And I, I can, We can all learn so much from each other. But we don't have the right biblically, to be murdered when we do that. <laughs> I always want to tell the story in such a way that I'm a good guy. <laughs> I always want to tell the story so that I fall on the side of the guy that does it right. And then Jesus comes along. 
with humility and beauty and grace and looks me in the eye and says, you've had some teaching that says not to murder. And I grin and say, yeah, and I don't murder anybody. And then he looks. He looks in my eyes. He knows. He says, I don't define it just by stopping somebody's life. I say that if you ever treated someone with contempt and disgust, you're guilty of murder. Wow. So what I want you to notice from these first two verses is that God gives us a radical new relational theological the theological significance of relation a relational hermeneutic. Note not the personal nature of this, and also note the weight of contempt on the soul. Remember, so if that's what we learn in the first two verses, what does he have to teach us in these second two verses in the couplets that go together? Verse 23. So if you have an offering... If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus, the rabbi, just told the people that a call for relational reconciliation is incredibly significant and deserves a level of urgency. So much urgency that it would suggest that you drop what you're doing at the altar, go find that person. Now, a couple of things. We Remember Paul said when it is... When it is up to you, be at peace with all men. Where it's, this is not saying that I have to spend the rest of my life finding everybody who has a problem with me and going to them. And, because at some level, I never stop. Um, whenever you, I mean, today, 20% of you will fall asleep. 20% of you might agree with me. 20% of you are going to go, I think he's an idiot. I don't even know which 20% will say that. Well, maybe more than 20%. Okay, uh, I'll, maybe it'll be higher. But if Jesus had to go to every one of the Pharisees that he offended in this sermon, he would have spent the rest of the Gospels going to each one of those. I don't think it teaches that. I think the implication here, and, and be real careful when someone tries to make a hard teaching from God easier on you. But I think the implication here is that the, the, the person is very curious about what they might have done to harm someone. A good Christian human being is more concerned about how they may have harmed another than how another has, may have harmed them. And there's a curiosity. Did that offend my brother? This week, I, I actually, I, I mean, by the way, the word brother here, most theologians would suggest that that's brotherhood, humanity altogether. Um, because of the context of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. 
of, and not literally just your brother. I'm, I'm always looking for ways to make it narrow so I, can, so I don't have to deal with this. But I actually called my real brother, my, my brother this week, because I felt like such a hypocrite, and just said, you know, Mike, is there anything that I've done that's offended you? And he, I, he pulled out a list. <laughs> and he, he, was, he was gracious. But I think this passage is supposed to make me curious about how have I harmed others in my relationship? It's supposed to, it's supposed to invite a humility. It's supposed to invite a, a graciousness a <coughs> that, that doesn't have to give up on truth. Now, I want you to know, this is not a formula. God is not saying, if you do this, all relationships turn out okay. Because I know a lot of people have gone to people and said, hey, if there's anything wrong, and they say, well, there's a lot wrong, and then they just trash them, and they're horrible to them. And, and this is not a promise that if you do this, it works. This is just a promise that if you do this, you'll look a lot more like Jesus. This is a promise that if you do this, you'll start living your life in a more sacrificial and gracious way, and you'll start being more like Jesus instead of more like just a regular garden variety, selfish person. So, in the first couple of verses, I want you to understand the, the invitation to a, a relational hermeneutic. I want you to understand the weight of contempt the soul. This next section, I want you to understand the urgency of reconciliation. There's an urgency in the reconciliation issues in the kingdom of God. God wants you to have an urgency about that to the point that a rabbi would say, leave your altar, leave your worship at the table. Come back later. Do you realize what Jesus is saying here? is that your anger can affect your ability to worship. Your unchecked anger, your angry demanding, your disappointment that your, your wrong affections aren't being met the way you hope, your commitment to self over everybody else, that gets in the way of your worship. So, in the second section... I want you to get the idea, the, the urgency of reconciliation among Christians, as a Christian, to be humble and to understand that if you don't take God seriously in this, it'll even affect your worship. Lastly, let's look at the next section. Verses 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser. There's urgency again, isn't there? While you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to a judge and the judge to a guard and be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. It's implied here in this example that he's using an example of somebody who owns, owes a debt. And so what he's saying is, listen, be wise on the way to court. Uh, try to resolve it as quickly as you can because... If you don't, you'll end up in jail for a long time. And that's not really a court, that's not really law advice. That's an advice about if you're, an ang you know, if there's anger. Um, now, 
what this passage, this section is supposed to bring you to, I believe, is Jesus is really upping the ante here. I mean, humans will continue, all of us will continue to make the bar as low as possible. And Jesus just raises the bar in these first four verses. And he raises it so much to the point where you kind of go, wow, I do owe a debt I can't pay. I, I do, I mean, I haven't murdered anybody in my life. But I've been angry since eight o'clock this morning, I mean, about things. I mean, I, I, I'm guilty of the anger sin already today. And what I start to realize, instead of my commitment to my self-righteousness, what I start to realize is there's a debt too great for me to pay that he must pay. And so the end of this section, Jesus ups the ante and leaves me saying, gosh, on my own, I can't possibly, I have offended so many people with my anger and contemptuous behavior. What hope do I have? And the answer is no hope without the work of Jesus on my behalf. And so the last point is that there is a great debt that is put upon you because of your anger. Well, our time is almost up and so much we could talk about in these passages. But I would just suggest to you a couple of real practical implications. First, Are you personally reconciled with God? You've got to, you can't go any further in this, in understanding this text. There's no application to this text if you haven't answered that question first. Are you, at this point, reconciled with God? Do you know the God who is up in the ante but offering forgiveness? Do you know him in your life? Are you a child of God. And if you aren't, please go right on the outside of this room after this is over and talk to some of the elders because that's got to be done because you can't, that dignity you long for in your life, you, you won't get. And understand until you realize God gives you that of the price he paid on the cross. First application is are you reconciled with God? Second application, are you here today with a new sense of urgency about reconciliation? Who comes to mind? So we're going to take 20 seconds in silence, and I want you to ask the question, God, bring to mind someone that I need to come to you with for reconciliation. It might be your children. It might be your wife. It might be, who knows? But as much as it is up to you, and I realize relationships are hard, and I realize families are hard, and I know there's some places I'm not asking you to go into abusive situations. I'm not asking you to put yourself in a place where people treat you with contempt. I'm not asking you to do that. There's, there's exceptions based on that idea. However, 
Let's take just 20 seconds. Ask God the question, who do I need reconciliation with in my life, possibly because of something I've done? Ask God that question. Third application. Please take seriously that. If if God gave you a name just now, don't just push that off. Remember, there's urgency in this. Matters to God. Third, how and who can you give dignity to this week? You know what I do? I tend to give dignity to the wrong people. You know, the people that have wealth and the people that already feel dignity. I kind of go with them and go, hi, be my friend. And the people who need to be given the gift of dignity, I sometimes just look right past them. So who does God put in your life that needs you to look him in the eye and say, hey, how are you doing today? Now, what was your name? So how long have you worked here at Angles? Huh. Thanks, you were really kind to me today, thanks. I mean, Who needs, I mean, be a dignity fairy that that offers the the beauty and the glory and the eternity of dignity to your world that's dying and lost. Last, do you have contempt toward God? Because he's not doing what you want. Toward yourself? Because the things you struggle with and never dealt with or with others. God would want you to not. He says anybody who deals with life with contempt deserves the fires of hell to him. Who are you contemptuous toward? To God? Yourself? Others? Look at those this week. And know this week that you serve a God who calls us to a much more glorious path. He calls you to live away, not based on the minimums, but with relational integrity of love and grace and kindness and truth. Oh, you've been invited into quite an adventure this week. Now, go humbly live it for his glory, for his purposes.